Hi, I'm Stephanie Lemick, and this is Building Trauma-Informed Workplaces. Before we kick off today's episode, I want to provide a content warning. We'll be talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, so please be aware, and most importantly, make sure and take care of your own mental health as a top priority, and if this topic is too difficult to listen to, go ahead and skip this podcast. I'm delighted to have my good friend, Adia Sikita, today as a guest. I'm going to go ahead and let Adia introduce herself and tell you a little bit about her experience. Specifically, we'll be talking today about her experience as a medical professional during the pandemic. Hi, Adia. Hello, Stephanie. I'm delighted to be here in lovely Phoenix, Arizona with you today. Absolutely. Great to have you in person. So give us a, give us your story. Give us your background. Tell us about, you know, your journey and how you became a healthcare professional. I became a healthcare professional in a very roundabout way. So as you know, I'm a nurse practitioner um, and I specialize in infectious diseases where it intersects with our immunocompromised patient population, specifically solid organ transplant patients. I became um, a healthcare professional on kind of a non-traditional route. So um, I had... You know, I was always kind of interested in nursing, but I had my oldest daughter when I was quite young and I dropped out of college and I felt that time frame that there was, you know, no way to go to college and be a mother and work. Um, so I had two more of my lovely daughters. And then when my youngest daughter was about five months old, I decided that then was the perfect time to go to school. So obviously, I went to nursing school. I worked initially as a labor and delivery nurse at our um at our uh, unit at the Nebraska Medical Center. And then I decided that um, I wanted to do more. And so then I went back and got my doctor nursing practice through Creighton University. And um, my very first job out of college was in infectious diseases. And I just thought it was a very interesting um, area field, which is why I chose to apply for the job. And I didn't really understand everything that would be about when I started working there in 2018. So I think that's a good segue into the pandemic. <laughs> Absolutely. So for our listeners who are maybe not medical professionals or not good friends with amazing medical professionals like yourself, tell us a little bit more about what it means to work in infectious disease. It's infectious diseases, we are consultants. So first of all, maybe just a little bit of context. I'm a nurse practitioner. Not everybody knows what that is. Uh, that means that I am an advanced practice registered nurse. It means that I have at least a master's degree. Um, and that I'm prepared, uh, I'm, you know, trained to assess and diagnose and provide care, sometimes with a supervision, supervising physician, but in Nebraska, I actually could be credentialed to provide that care on my own. And so by no means, I don't want to market myself as a physician or, a, you know, a medical doctor, but I do and am able to, you know, to take care of patients on my own. So, um, so in infectious diseases, we are typically consulted. Um, our patients can have anything from very minor upper respiratory infections to life-threatening illnesses. And to me, it's always this big puzzle piece of, um, that's what I enjoy about most. It's this big puzzle piece of like, what's going on with the patient? You have to follow all the clues and put together the big picture in order to figure out how you can treat them and make them better if you're able to do so. So our patients are always sick. Uh, they often have multi-system organ failure. Um, and in my particular practice, we're working with patients who are also immunocompromised because they take uh, various immunosuppressive medications to prevent the body from rejecting the transplant organ. Very cool. So high stakes. Yes. Yes. Very absolutely. high stakes stuff. 
I mean, I think a lot of us are more familiar with the term infectious disease as part of a medical practice because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so certainly, I mean, every one of us, you know, has a, a kind of a, a scar on our life experience, so to speak, from the pandemic. And, you know, we've talked about how it's impacted a lot of folks. But I think what's really special about your perspective is that direct medical professional perspective. And obviously, as someone working infectious diseases, that's kind of amplified, you know, mm -hmm. you were right there. And so I would love to hear from you. I mean, tell me a little bit about your experience. You know, what was it like, you know, as things were starting out mm -hmm. and kind of what was that experience like for you kind of professionally, but also personally? Absolutely. I want to kind of context all of this by saying that I work at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. As many of you may know, uh, Nebraska Medicine has a biocontainment unit. And so during the Ebola outbreak, um, we were one of the only centers in the entire country that was able to take care of Ebola patients during that time frame. Uh, we were heading into the pandemic and being in this position of being one of the medical centers that had a biocontainment unit that was um, perhaps in some ways more prepared, more, more familiar with taking care of patients who had very contagious diseases that people weren't familiar with. So I, I wanted to put in that context. Um, so, you know, I think what it was like January, February timeframe in 2020 that we all started hearing about this new virus um, mm -hmm. that was coming out of China. And so, I feel, you know, it's really interesting uh, in the very beginning days, the very early days, we were all kind of chatting behind the scenes of, amongst ourselves. You know, I work in infectious diseases. I have a lot of um, very well-renowned physicians that I work with, and we're all kind of chatting. We're like, what do you think is going to happen? What do you what do you think is coming? What do you guys think is going to happen? And, um, you know, we certainly all knew years before that there was a possibility that there would be some type of virus that was able to mutate. Um, that was novel to humans that we would have no natural immunity against. And there certainly was always a possibility of a worldwide pandemic. And so we all knew very, like, very realistically that this was something that could very quickly spin out of control as we start to see happen, as we start to see happen. And so um, what I think was very interesting heading into the lockdown in, that all started in March of 2020 um, was that the university started to prepare for that possibility, a very real possibility, because we saw what was happening. And I think it was by March, it was just like a foregone conclusion that this was not going to be able to be contained, perhaps even by the end of February. It was a foregone conclusion this couldn't be contained um, mm -hmm. and that it was going to cause a worldwide pandemic um, with very serious and far-reaching consequences. So we started to prepare for it and we started to um, move patients. Like we knew there would be too many patients for our very small biocontainment unit. Um, this was not taking care of one or two Ebola patients, but this was mm -hmm. taking care of mass populations. And so we began to make space in our units. And so, for example, right outside of our office area um, is our, one of our medical ICUs. And it's typically full. It's typically completely full. And so one of the most striking things that I remember is walking back to my office through this medical ICU, and it was completely empty. The lights were off. And um, all of the doors had these stacks of personal equipment, uh, personal protective equipment, like outside of them. Everything was all set up and, and ready, ready. And it was just eerily quiet, but we knew it was coming. And I remember we all stopped and I said, let's just sit here for a minute. So it was my attending Dr. Cleo, 
um, and two of the nurse practitioners I work with, Jen and Caspi, and we all just kind of sat there and just like soaked in the most eerily quiet that's not going to be like this in a few weeks. We didn't know what it was going to look like, but we knew it wouldn't continue to look like this. And so it was just this all, it was just this weird sense of, um, I don't even want to call it dread because we didn't even mm-hmm. know what it was going to look like. We just knew it was coming and almost the anticipation yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because hearing you, you know, talk about like you have this specialized knowledge, you right. have this great context and even, you know, specifically the specialized practice mm-hmm. that, you know, you're able to be a part of with Nebraska medicine. And I, I know, you know, my brother, the paramedic, you know that, yes. and he has, you know, talked a little bit about this with me as well, kind of that specialization, that emergency response. Mm-hmm you learn and know so much more. And, you know, one thing I, I remember my brother telling me about being a medical professional when he first started was sometimes that knowledge can be quite a burden at times. And I remember late February, early March, you know, I am an HR executive Mm -hmm. and I distinctly have this memory of talking at an executive team meeting we're talking about things that are coming up. And I said to my team, I'm like, hey, I really think we need to start to think about what's happening with coronavirus. I think mm-hmm. we need to start talking about the pandemic. And I basically got laughed out of the room. Everyone was kind of like, oh, it's no big deal. Like, what are you thinking? Right. And this is me as not a medical professional. This is just me, you know, having the context of good friends mm-hmm. who are medical professionals, you know, being a little bit more in tune with that. And people were so dismissive. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think that was difficult mm-hmm. at the very beginning because, you know, weeks later, it's, you know, the CEO popping into my office going, what are we going to do about COVID-19? Like, what are we going to do? <laughs> we have to send all these people home. And it was one, I mean, honestly, it was one of the most mm-hmm. stressful moments of my career. I remember being so sweaty. It's like this overwhelming <laughs> feeling. I'm like, why am I so sweaty? We have to send everyone home. But I mean you existed in that space with mm-hmm. all this context, all that, this information mm-hmm. for literally weeks. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how that felt. I knew the anvil was going to drop. Yeah. We just didn't know what it was going to look like. Yeah. And I was, I remember having a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, you read the news reports, you're like, from a medical perspective, I felt a little bit more confident. I don't know how to explain that, but yeah. it's like, okay, there's going to be a pandemic. We're going to go through this. And we're going to take care of patients. That mm-hmm. was sort of like a foregone conclusion. But I was existing in that space also as a daughter, as yeah. a granddaughter, um, as a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know what all of that was going to look like for my family. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably get to tell that a little bit later in the podcast. But, um, you know, I didn't know what that was going to look like. I felt very certain at the time it was going to have significant um, economic impact. Yeah. I remember my mother texting me and saying, hey, um, what do you think of this COVID-19 virus? And I said, well, I think we're all fucked. And it's going to have very significant impact above and beyond just people getting sick. This is going to like really bring our society to a standstill. And I think we still don't really understand how much of an effect that had on students. You know, my daughter was head as a junior in high school and um, the emotional and growth development impact that had on children during that time frame. But so I... We didn't, and I had a lot of anxiety. I didn't know what that was going to look like. I yeah. felt very certain it was going to cause a lot of, it was going to have a lot of far reaching consequences. And I remember sitting at one of my favorite 
uh, bars in Omaha. They're all talking about it and what is this going to look like? And so they looked at me and like, well, what do you think? And I was like, well, we're all going to, this is all going to get shut down. Yeah. And I said, this is your, everybody's going to have to be home. It's going to have like far reaching financial consequences. And they just looked at me and I said, people, a lot of people are going to die. Mm -hmm. And I just remember like the look on their face that they were like, oh shit. And mm -hmm. I don't know if they really believe me or, but I was just being very largely my community, mm -hmm. my, you know, peer group, not medical professionals. And I think about when we talk about the pandemic, mm -hmm. you know, there is, there's a lot of different reactions. And certainly there were a lot of different reactions to the pandemic and yes. some of the responses to that, maybe we'll chat about later, but it is, I mean, I think it gets back to the burden of knowledge and information. Mm -hmm. I mean, Absolutely. things you knew were a foregone conclusion of right. what were going to happen. And it did happen. Mm -hmm. I think it's very hard for people to kind of wrap their heads around it. But mm -hmm. I mean, what's interest, interesting for me, for what you're saying, I think about the most stressful part of your experience being like the actual caring for patients, the medical mm -hmm. experience. It wasn't. It wasn't. Like no. I could just hear from the tone of your voice. There was a certainty around that. Like mm -hmm. you knew what, like, even though you didn't know, you knew what was going to happen. You knew individuals were going to get very sick. You knew you were going to have to care for patients. Like you knew mm -hmm. what was happening there. Like you had a sense of, hey, this is what's going to happen. It was kind of everything else in your life that right. was additionally stressful. And I think I think that's just such an interesting thing because when I think about, you know, medical professionals, folks caring for the people who are very sick and, mm -hmm. and unfortunately the many people who died during the pandemic, I think about the stress and the toll of the actual practicing of medicine, mm -hmm. not about everything else. Mm -hmm. And I mean, hearing you talk, and I'm sure others' experiences are different, but hearing you talk, it's the everything else mm -hmm. that really took the greatest toll. I think it did, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So once things shut down, mm -hmm. and, you know, I remember it being kind of this very, like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? What do we expect? I I personally distinctly remember this moment of getting very sweaty at work, we talked about, and mm -hmm. sending everyone home. Mm -hmm. But I also remember... Um, my brother, Nick, he was going into people's homes yes. as a first responder mm -hmm. during the pandemic. I mean, during the entirety of the pandemic, but at the very beginning, I remember he actually recorded a video and sent it to me of what first responders were to do to don and doff mm -hmm. their protective equipment because yes. they did not know. Because you don't know. You well, don't. I typically have the benefit of knowing I was going into a COVID room. Right. But you don't, in his scenario, you just don't know what you're you walking into. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was just like, oh my gosh. And I remember him being very concerned about going in and out of work shifts with his small children mm -hmm. and his wife. And I mean, I would love to hear from you, you know, if you can reflect on that very beginning part of the pandemic mm -hmm. where you know, knowledge was growing, but it was still very right. small. Things were very uncertain. I know I was at the grocery store, no mask, <laughs> in masses of people. 
And then I was coming home, like wiping down bags of Lay's potato chips. Um, so like that moment of the pandemic, if you can reflect on it, like from a medical practitioner, you know, you know, in the hospital, caring for patients, mm -hmm. back into integrating with your family. That was, of course, a concern. I think we all had as healthcare professionals, like what if we take this virus home to our families? And I don't know if it's just because I work in infectious diseases. Um, and I, I come into contact with contagious patients all the time. Certainly not with a novel virus, but everything else is contagious. And so for me, I just never worried too much about it. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I put on my protective equipment. I go into the patient's rooms. I take it off. I, you know, wash my hands and then I go home to my family. And I've just never really worried about it too much. Um, and certainly I, I did have a little bit of extra level of anxiety with the the coronavirus, I think we all did. And my husband and I, so of course, our, everything shut down in March and you know, all the schools went remote. And my husband and I actually made the decision to send our girls to his parents' house in Oklahoma. And they were there actually for a couple months. Um, so my children weren't home. They, they were someplace that I felt was safe. Yeah. And to be honest, that was a uh, it was a big stress relief. I yeah. knew that they were being well taken care of. Of course, I missed them. Yeah. Um, but they were being well taken care of with my in-laws. And I knew that they, my in-laws were, you know, very practical people. I knew that they would take all the measures they needed to keep my children safe and keep themselves safe. And so that was a big relief for me. Um, but around the same time that this was all occurring, my uh, grandfather had um, a big stroke. Mm -hmm. And ended up in the hospital and needed skilled nursing care, skilled yeah. nursing facility care. Um, and I knew that if he went to, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Talk about, I knew if he went to a skilled nursing facility that I would never see him again. Uh -huh. um, because uh, it was running rampant through nursing homes at the time, if you recall. Right. And yeah. so uh, this is where a lot of, I think, emotional trauma happens as a society is that we weren't allowed to participate, to grieve, to celebrate um, events that we all hold sacred and dear to ourselves, correct? Right. And so um, the trauma from missing out on that, I think, is something that we can all identify with. And so I knew that if he went to a skilled nursing facility, you know, that his prognosis was basically he would probably continue to have these many strokes and eventually he would pass away. But I knew if he went to a school nursing facility, that would be it. We wouldn't be allowed to visit him. And he would think, you know, he, he, he was mentally altered, but still very much my grandfather. <laughs> but he would think that we had basically abandoned him. And I was having I just this horrible time coping with that. And I remember uh, laying on the floor in my bathroom, just like just screaming, you know, like in like rage, like um, grief that this was happening because this shouldn't be the, this shouldn't be the case, you know? Right. Um, and so I picked myself up off the floor and I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take him home. He's not going to his governor's thing, so he's going to come home. Yeah. And so uh, I called my grandmother, I called my dad, I called my uncle. And I was like, this is what we have to do. Um, he can't go to his governor's thing, so he has right. to come home. And they were like, we can't do that. How are we going to take care of him? Yeah. Like, what are we going to do? And I was like, you guys don't understand. If he goes to his governor's thing, so we won't see him again. That'll, that'll be it. We won't be allowed to visit. Um, and hostels are already shutting down. Um, at this point, you know, when he first had the stroke, you know, it was regular 
everything operational as usual at the hospital. And um, by the time that we made this decision, they'd already cut down to one visitor a day, one person room at a time. And so things were shutting down very quickly. And so we made the decision to take my grandpa home. And so we all started taking shifts with my grandpa to take care of him. And he needed a lot of like, you know, uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy. He had to be fed, he had to be bathed. Um, so we took on that uh, caregiver role. For me, that was like the hardest thing. Uh, you know, I told my grandmother, I'm like, you can't go to the grocery store grandma. You have yeah. to give me a list. You can't, absolutely cannot go to the grocery store. It's not safe. You can't go. This was still in March before like really that, that big wave started. So in March, we took my grandpa home and we started, you know, caring for him at home. And we just, we just shifted with my grandma. My grandma obviously like worked herself to death that she, you know, yeah. trying to take care of my grandfather. And, you know, initially he did well and was, you know, but we all, my, I guess my point is that we all got extra time. Yeah. We all got extra time with him. Um, that we wouldn't, and I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I always forget that I was experiencing the pandemic as a healthcare professional, but I was also going through it on a very, a human level, yeah, a very human level as well. And, and I think that was, that was one of the most, you know, the, one of the hardest things is that he, he didn't have the care that he needed to have. Yeah. Um, but the alternative wasn't acceptable. Right. Obviously a really traumatic personal aspect yes. of the pandemic for you. Um, and I appreciate you sharing with us. I also think you raise an important point here is when we talk about the pandemic, mm -hmm. it is so easy to focus on COVID right. and how COVID got people sick. People, you know, still have long COVID people pass away from COVID, mm -hmm. but there's also the implications to the overwhelming of the healthcare system, mm -hmm. the implications of the lack of safety mm -hmm. in the healthcare system because of this null health evidence. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people missed out on care that they needed Absolutely. as part of the pandemic as well. Right. And I think the impact of that are also far reaching. And it's a really important point that I think, you know, you mentioned oh, it earlier, we haven't fully reflected no. on all the impacts of COVID, but I think it's another impact of COVID that we often overlook and had significant impact on individuals who needed care, but also mm -hmm. to your point on their family members, mm -hmm. because moving into a caregiver mm -hmm. role is incredibly taxing. And mm -hmm. you can, you know, we talk about compassion fatigue or secondary trauma. When we talk about first responders or medical professionals, it's also something that caregivers can experience as Absolutely. well. So I think you've hit on, you know, through your own personal experience, you've also hit on something that is likely an experience, unfortunately, of many people during oh, the I'm pandemic sure. outside mm -hmm. of the medical profession. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, I think if you remember a little bit earlier, we were talking about the ICU that was completely empty and this is yeah. just a wait, just waiting for patients. And this is an ICU that was typically completely full. Mm -hmm. And so at the height of the pandemic, um, we had five floors of our hospital dedicated only to COVID patients. Mm -hmm. So where do the rest of the patients go? Who would usually be, our hospital's always full. Mm -hmm. So where do the rest of those patients go? And the the very important point that you heard was that they weren't getting the care they needed. Right. So people died not only from COVID, but they died from not having access to care. Right. And I want to also mention that that impacted marginalized populations much more heavily 
was especially hard hit by that phenomenon. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it really does. And I mean, it's certainly, I mean, many of the inequities and challenges yes. of our healthcare system were magnified significantly magnified um, throughout the pandemic. And and I think in many ways, especially as it relates to, you know, medical professional burnout, mm -hmm. compassion fatigue, you know, <laughs> being able to get through their own daily lives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think you've perfectly highlighted medical professionals did amazing work during the pandemic, but they also were there people, your people, and you had some of those challenging experiences mm -hmm. that we all had during the pandemic. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of reactions to the pandemic or pushback to the pandemic, because I have this very uh, specific memory. I know we're sitting here in Phoenix, so Arizona, maybe not surprising, but I remember, you know, watching the news and seeing, you know, New York. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think as Americans, when we think about the pandemic, we were, dumbfounded. We were looking at New York and mm -hmm. we were looking at what was happening in New York and it was absolutely devastating. And, and still to this day, you know, as an HR professional, as an HR consultant who partners with clients across the country, someone's experience in the pandemic in New York is so wildly different mm -hmm. than someone's experience of the pandemic in Arizona. I talk about it a lot. Everyone's shared experience of this traumatic event mm -hmm. was also incredibly individualized. So it's, it's just such an amazing analogy for trauma, mm -hmm. but Absolutely. also an unfortunate analogy, but it is what it is. We've all experienced it. But I remember watching on the news every night, you know, really devastating images mm -hmm. and conversations from New York or mm -hmm. from some of these big cities where, you know, bodies were being loaded in refrigerator trucks mm -hmm. and, you know, people were stuck mm -hmm. in their very small apartment. Then here I am in Arizona. We're just, you know, trotting our dogs around the neighborhood in the evening in a suburb, you know, masking up to go to the grocery store, but really, you know, not terribly effective. Mm -hmm. we were, fortunately, my husband and I were both able to work from home. And there was this weird moment. I can't remember exactly when, but it was like very, I feel like Arizona was one of the first places that like got COVID precaution fatigue mm -hmm. very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So mask went off rather quickly. So I remember pretty darn quickly, things are still exploding in different mm -hmm. areas of the country. And I'm now going to the grocery store and it goes from almost 100% people wearing masks mm -hmm. to 75% mm -hmm. to 50% right. to 25%. And I mean, I'm very fortunate that I am not immunocompromised. I don't have additional risk factors. Mm -hmm. I was still wearing a mask, but I felt still pretty secure. Right. Like doing what I hear I'm supposed to do from the experts, like, okay, like let's do our part. Mm -hmm. I'm just so interested in kind of your perspective or your reaction to kind of the reactions, for lack of a better term, to the pandemic, to, you know, the protocols. I mean, I can appreciate people were frustrated. People right. wanted to get back to regular life. Right. I but, wanted to get back to my life, too. I mean, I think we all did. <laughs> um, but 
that also was coupled with like a very stark reality. Right. And I mean, you talk a little bit about, I mean, we shut things down in March mm-hmm. and you talk about this wave of COVID hitting the Midwest in, you know, the fall winter time. Right. A lot of people had stopped taking precautions. At yes, absolutely. So we had the, you know, the couple weeks where everything was completely shut down and then, you know, they decided to open things back up very gradually with a limited amount of precautions in place. As you know, I'm from Nebraska and we had a very, very conservative governor at the time um, who I, I feel like I was really surprised at how politicized the pandemic became. And yeah. that's one thing that I had not anticipated mm-hmm. at the very beginning. People are saying, what do you think is going to happen? And I was like, people yeah. are going to die and it's going to have a far reaching economic impact. What I didn't think about was the political fallout from it. Right. It's one thing I never considered would happen. Um, and I think what's interesting, you know, when you learn from history, if you go back to the Spanish, which I, I found out later, which is, I was reading about the Spanish influenza pandemic. The pandemic became very politicized then as well, which. Oh, really? Absolutely. That's interesting. I yeah. didn't realize that. Um, so history piece itself. And I think this one thing that we haven't really ever talked about when we're studying prior pandemics. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly this is the thing that I do find fascinating and somewhat perhaps a little bit comforting, which is perhaps kind of odd, but pandemics aren't anything new. Right. <laughs> I mean, we've had a great reprieve from them, um, but historically they're nothing new. And so it's very interesting to go back and study old pandemics and to see what the political fallout mm-hmm. um, and the society fallout from those are. And so I've actually become like, really interested in like the plague and things like that and how it shaped civilization because it mm-hmm. did. It had like far-reaching consequences. Right. Um, so I was not prepared in the beginning for how much, how close lives it would become. Like, you know, if you if you wear a mask, then you're against personal freedom. Or if you think <laughs> that people should, you know, be vaccinated, do their part uh, in preventing the spread of COVID, that you're somehow becoming like a fascist or something like that. Right. And that was not what I was prepared for. And I certainly wasn't prepared for the deep mistrust from the public um, that somehow started to turn against healthcare professionals because we right. were advocating these things. And suddenly the public is like, well, you don't really know what you're talking about and you're getting kickbacks from this and you're lying to us and we don't trust you. And as a healthcare professional, I'm used to being trusted. Right. If I say that you need to take this medicine so that you get better, I'm used to people saying, okay, I'll do that. And I don't think there's many professions left in the world where you say you should do this. And people are like, oh, okay, I, I probably should do that. But as a healthcare professional, we kind of have that luxury, but right. that was really challenged during the pandemic in a way that I wasn't prepared for or anticipated. Yeah. Um, do you think that that's kind of persisted? Absolutely. I feel like there's before and after mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to the pandemic. And I, I still have people, you know, part of my job is, you know, people are being listed for transplant patient and we have to do vaccine education. Mm-hmm. Um, we would like you to have as much protection as you can heading into a new immunocompromised state mm-hmm. uh, against viruses. And I would like you to have all of these vaccines, including the COVID vaccine. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me how people are willing to get all the other vaccines, but not the COVID vaccine, not that one. Um, and it's amazing to me how people are willing to put somebody else's organ into their body and they're willing to take immunosuppressive medication that literally alters the function of your T and B cells, that changes the way your body, it, it basically defunctionalizes them in certain ways. And so they're willing to do all that. Don't give me a COVID vaccine. And 
Why do you think that is? I mean, what's, I mean, you, I've had, I cannot imagine how many conversations you've had about the COVID vaccine, both probably personally and professionally. I think it is. I, I, I I don't study this side of society, Um, but I feel like social media allowed these conspiracy theories to like really replicate and it hit at the, I feel like all of these, these, you know, all this chatter and all this, um, concern and confusion really hit at people's the deepest fears and insecurities that we all have and I feel like we were all vulnerable to it because even in healthcare I was like well I trust this I trust it's the working but I'm not gonna I'm going to be 100% transparent in the back of my mind there was like the what if right but what if and so I think it hit the core of a lot of the vulnerabilities our society has um in ways that we hadn't really thought about, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I mean, talk a little bit about trust. And I talk a lot about trust when mm-hmm. I talk about, you know, trauma-informed systems, processes, workplaces. And, you know, the thing about, or like, trust is interesting and in how we all kind of interact with trust. Mm-hmm. It, it's different. But I think about, you know, you t- just in our conversation kind of talking about trust, and sometimes trust is broken without any personal action. Like mm-hmm. sometimes systems or processes break out. Right. And we talked about, you know, I think generally speaking, most of us who, you know, work, have health insurance, you know, do all the things we're supposed to do. You all can't see my air quotes, but they're there. <laughs> We have an expectation, or at least we had an expectation, that when we needed care, when we needed health care, it would be accessible to us. Mm-hmm. Now, perhaps we didn't have expectations that it would be affordable or free, but we had expectations that it would be accessible to us. Mm-hmm. And I think we hit on a specific challenge that for a lot of people, it was no longer accessible in the way that we expected we couldn't really go to the doctor Mm -hmm. if we had a sinus infection in the same way that we could in years past. Right. And we couldn't, you know, have a question and get a specific and clear answer because, you know, the COVID-19 virus was evolving and Mm -hmm. it depended. Information Information was ongoing. changing so quickly. And so I think for a lot of people, their trusting relationship with healthcare was based on you have access to this care now and you have access to a really clear answer Mm -hmm. now. And because of the pandemic, it shifted to a, you don't have access to this care right now because it's not safe Mm -hmm. because you may be immunocompromised and exposed to a virus that Mm -hmm. we don't fully understand. Or we cannot prioritize your care because it's not Mm life-threatening. So we have to prioritize this life-threatening virus. Mm -hmm. And Or we say don't wear masks at the beginning of the pandemic. And then we say wear whatever mask you can get your hands on, even if it's a cloth mask. And then then we say cloth masks probably don't really work. So you should probably wear this other kind of mask. So you're getting this inconsistent information (laughs) when you're expecting really, really consistent. For some people that chain ever changing was scary. And I think that potentially that eroded trust. Mm-hmm. And then to your point, social media was able to amplify, you know, 
unintentional misinformation, but I also think there's a really concerted effort to oh, spread so, intentional too. misinformation yeah. and exploit like there's no the lack question. of trust and exploit people's vulnerabilities mm -hmm. in an incredibly vulnerable time period. And, you know, I think, again, that is another one of those things that I don't think we fully understand mm -hmm. the long-term ramifications. But I think, I mean, just in this conversation, I am having a little bit of an epiphany around, you know, trust is just this powerful tool mm -hmm. when it comes to creating, you know, safe, trauma-informed environments. And by no fault of the medical community at large, trust was eroded mm -hmm. because of just the environment and mm -hmm. the situation of the pandemic. And I think, I mean, that is incredibly challenging. I, you know, think about going from a trusted partner to a frequently questioned partner. Mm -hmm. And that experience as a professional has to be incredibly challenging. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and it sounds like it's really changed your experience of your profession since the beginning of the pandemic. I would say there's, I would say there's still a lot of people who trust healthcare professionals out there, but definitely I, I do feel like the patients are more questioning. They want yeah. to know um, what are their alternatives? Like what if they don't do anything? What if I give them this medication or side effects? And they're much more wary, I do feel overall. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wanna talk a little bit about compassion fatigue or mm -hmm. secondary trauma. Um, human firsthand trauma. Um, it's something that I think we don't talk about enough um, as we think about trauma and how people experience a wide range of things. But, you know, when I think about medical professionals in the pandemic, I think about, you know, constantly being surrounded by, I mean, devastation, mm -hmm. devastated families, mm -hmm. death, very challenging healthcare experiences. I mean, people talk about being, you know, traumatized by treatment that saved their life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what was that experience like for you as someone providing the care? And, you know, how do you think that affected you, you know, personally? Or how did you see, how did you see it affect, you know, your coworkers and peers? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a, a great question of many facets. And I want to say, first of all, that in my particular role, I never bore the brunt of any of this. Um, now, certainly I took care of patients who were very sick, but, you know, the physicians and the nurse practitioners and the, you know, physician's assistants and the nurses and the care techs and the cleaning staff even who, you know, took care of these patients. Um, the sickest of our COVID patients are incredibly, is, is, is a, taking care of them is a, an incredibly physically demanding task. You know, you have a patient intubated, sedated, sometimes paralyzed, sometimes prone, multiple, you know, drips, antibiotics, ventilators, alarms, and you're caring for this patient who's completely incapacitated. And you have a drip wrong or you have a vet setting wrong, uh, they start to crash and start to die. And sometimes despite your best efforts, they start to do that anyway. And so, you know, I can't imagine the people who were spending these 12-hour shifts physically taking care of these patients um, with no breaks. And I think we've all seen the pictures. So we all had our personal protective equipment. At the beginning of the pandemic, we recycled all of that. Um, so you had to go find your mask 
that you wore three days ago and wear it again. We have a process for like irradiating the mess. So you go find, you know, you go find your special equipment and then uh, you would wear that mask for a 12 hour shift. And, you know, you would certainly allow breaks to eat and drink, but, you know, we have the pictures of the nurses um, who would have all the bruising mm-hmm. on their face from wearing these masks and like the discoloration and bruising and like the, they're very tight. They cut into your face and mm-hmm. it causes trauma to your actual face. I didn't bear the brunt of any of that. And so I want to, you know, the people who did those things uh, on the very front lines have my ultimate respect. Yeah. Um, so I think as far as compassion fatigue, you know, it's just, it's very difficult. Uh, as healthcare providers, I think we always sort of disassociate ourselves a little bit. It's the protective mechanism that we all have. And, you know, um, you try not to get too emotionally involved with your mm-hmm. patients. Yeah. Um, but it's difficult. Uh, you know, in December of 21, uh, my grandpa passed away, uh, which was very sad, but we all knew, we all had seen that coming through. So he passed away December 7th of uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. And we had a funeral for him. And I remember my coworkers being upset that I went to the funeral. Yeah. Um, because they were like, you're just going to get COVID. And like, we're all going to wear masks. We're all going to like mm-hmm. do our best, but like we have to go through this grieving process of the collective, like healing. You know, we need to have this collective grieving process. We need to go through this as a family and say mm-hmm. goodbye to my grandpa and honor the person that he was to all of us. And this is how we just began to heal, right? Is this is what we do as a society. Is mm-hmm. We lay our dead to rest. We grieve them. We celebrate them. Um, we give each other emotional support and this is how we deal with death typically. Mm-hmm. And, but I had coworkers saying, you shouldn't do this, but these are my colleagues who were, right. who were judging me for going to my grandfather's funeral. So we all went, we wore masks and I told my family, we have to be really careful. Like we, mm-hmm. you have to wear your mask in this group setting. We can't let our guard down just because we're going through this traumatic, you know, event of saying goodbye to something that we love very much. And a family didn't listen. So yeah. um, after the funeral, they had this, you know, we do, we bring food, right? Yeah. We bring food um, at my grandmother's apartment. And so a bunch of animals were there. And so my daughters and I went, we had our masks on and I look around and everyone's eating and chatting and smiling and laughing and no one's wearing a mask. And I said, you guys, I'm like, you can't do this. Like, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, it's okay. Nobody's sick. We're all fine. And so I said to my girls, I'm like, I'm sorry, we have to go. Um, and my, I remember my grandmother saying, oh, you better come say, you haven't even said hi to me. Come say hi to me. And I remember giving her a hug and saying, I'm sorry, grandma. I can't, uh, sorry. Um, I can't be here right now. No one's wearing a mask. And I have to go. And I gave her a kiss and I said goodbye to her. And um, we found out a couple days later that uh, several people in my family had COVID, including her. And of course, mm-hmm. she's in her 80s. And um, she very quickly got very sick. And I never saw her. Uh, I, I was able, I was able because um, I'm a uniquely privileged healthcare <laughs> provider. Right. Um, perhaps unfairly to see her again, but not in a, you know, she was dying when I saw her again. Yeah. My, I, I had a very good friend who worked at the hospital she was staying at, and she was like, just come. 
back and say goodbye. And I was able to do something that nobody else was able to do. And I feel kind of guilty about that, but in some ways I don't care. Yeah. I needed to say goodbye to her. And so she passed away um, the first week in January. She passed away January 2nd. Three weeks after my grandfather passed away. And um, so I remember, you know, being into her hospital room and the, the whole floor was just completely overwhelmed um, with patients like her who were dying. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the staff did everything they could to keep her comfortable, you know, morphine for air hunger, et cetera. And I, I do believe that she passed away very comfortably. Um, and that was her choice. That was her decision. She was like, I don't want extraordinary measures to keep me alive. I don't want to do that. And that was her choice. And I believe that she, she died on her own terms. Yeah. So, but it's hard not to see every patient yeah. in, in your loved one. And so you would know, like, you know, when patients are turning the corner. And so we take care. Uh, I, I feel like in our, our practice, we have, we know our patients pretty well. Um, you don't know all of them, of course, but you get to know your patients. Um, you see them repeatedly uh, for various things. And so there are a lot of patients that I knew, you know, post-transplant, we had seen them for various, you know, infections and they were frequent flyers in our clinic and they got better and were doing well. We knew their families. We knew their life story. We knew that they have, you know, three, three children, grandkids scattered across the country. We, I like, I know their dog's names you know, you, you know them and they would get sick mm-hmm. and you would see them start to turn the corner and you would just know that nothing was going to make them better. And so for me, you know, for me personally, I would go into their rooms to examine them as you do in the morning before rounds. And uh, I would just, you know, I'd take a minute and I would hold their hand and I mm-hmm. would just be like, I would say a prayer. Yeah, I would say a prayer for them. I don't know if I'm religious or not. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you would, I would just take it and I would hold their hand and I and I would just I knew they were probably going to die. But mm-hmm. I just wanted to have that minute of someone like caring for them as a person. Yeah. And not just as a patient. Of course I care for them as a patient, but I wanted them to have, even if they didn't know, even if they were sedated and didn't know, I wanted to just give them that minute of, of humanity. And so it's hard not to walk out of, it's hard not, I, I, I turn into my N95 a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> with while it's not. And <laughs> so, you know, I would leave the room, like I have to go find a minute to compose myself and like suck it up and just push, push all that grief very far down mm-hmm. and very far into the back of your mind um, in order to go on with my day. And so every as you said, everyone, it impacts everyone differently. And I wasn't at the front line um, caring for these patients as, as they start to die. But I certainly, certainly have my fair share of trauma from that. Yeah. I mean, I can just tell like what a profound impact it has, but I can't help but feeling that. I mean, I hope it is consoling or meaningful to people who perhaps had a loved one who was sick or passed during the pandemic. And, you know, unfortunately they were unable to say goodbye or be by their bedside. That there was, there were humans there just like you who 
at the same time you were using your expertise and your medical credentials to provide the best care possible, you are also at the same time recognizing the humanity of each of your patients and caring for them in that way Mm -hmm. and recognizing that. And I think that's a heavy toll on top of being required to bring your best game Mm -hmm. to make sure that all of those things are right. Mm -hmm. You're also recognizing these patients that you care about as people Mm -hmm. do not have that comfort that they would have Mm -hmm. in a different scenario. Right. So I think it's just, um, I mean, it's a heavy experience for certainly, you know, you or anyone in a similar situation, but I also think it's a heavy collective experience Mm -hmm for all of us to think about what that was like for so many months for well over a year. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I appreciate you sharing that and sharing that experience. You have shared a lot and I really appreciate (laughs) it. Really appreciate your vulnerability and sharing professional and personal stories as well. If there's any one thing, you know, you could share with this audience that's interested in being trauma-informed, being trauma-informed at work or just as part of their lives? Like, is there any advice you could offer either from like a professional perspective or even just a personal perspective? I think having compassion, Mm -hmm. you know, as healthcare providers are expected to have compassion, right? That's what people assume that you're, you know, you're my medical care provider, that you're going to be compassionate towards me. But having um, compassion towards your coworkers, towards your patients, and certainly towards yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things that we forget is to have compassion for ourselves as humans when we're in those types of roles and to give ourselves some space and to give ourselves some time to grieve and and decompress and process those feelings when you're working in those types of environments. It's incredibly important. And I think we just, you know, when when we're going about our daily business, we don't understand you see the superficial Mm -hmm. side of people. Um, You see the, you know, the front that they put on for all of us. And I think the whole process of trauma-informed care is understanding that there are many currents Mm -hmm. um, going on in the person beneath the surface that impact how they respond and impact how they deal with scenarios. And so giving people space and grace and not reacting to um, something that could be triggering for you is really, really important. And to me, that's what trauma-informed care is about. I love that. That's so helpful. Well, thank you so much, Dia. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. And thank you all for joining us and listening in. Hope you join us for our next podcast where we'll talk more about trauma-informed workplaces. I'm Stephanie Levick. Thank you.